So if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn to the book of 1 Timothy. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be uh, Bibles scattered around the church under the chairs. They are the burgundy books, maroon. Um, we live in a day, and I think you are aware of this, where the, chur- the, the truth more and more is under attack. Where people are, lo- are losing their jobs for simply saying something as audacious as uh, marriage is meant to be between a man and a woman, right? Where, where more and more Christians and those that believe in God are being shoved out of academia as, as bigots, as foolish. And I think that we live now in a time, at least in my lifetime, and maybe, maybe in yours as well, that the church now more than ever needs to stand with clarity when it comes to biblical doctrine. That we need to be clear on the Orthodox Christian faith that the church has confessed for 2,000 years. Because yes, it is 2020, and yes, we are a modern people, but as Christians, we are not coming up with something new, right? The, the, the truth that we believe is the truth that we have always believed. It's just that we live in a day where people, the culture is now hostile to much of what that truth says, So we need to stand with clarity when it comes to biblical doctrine, and I believe that we need to stand with conviction and confidence on that doctrine. And if we do not, we will be led astray, I believe, by the the currents of this world. The, The slippery slope, it is a slippery slope, and as soon as we begin to... Um, go down that road and and begin to deny even the smallest of biblical truth. It's just a matter of time before we are completely lost. Uh, I have entitled this message today, Contending for the Faith. And this is going to actually be a three-part short sermon series, Contending for the Faith. So what I hope to do today in this first message is just to kind of lay down the foundation of this call or this charge for the church to, to know and contend for the faith. I want to read to you firstly out of 1 Timothy. Uh, this will be a bit of a, a jumping off text for us. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. Paul says there, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Let's pray. And Lord God, we do come now to your word, your holy, infallible, inspired, inerrant, eternal word that speaks to us with authority. And I pray that we would be those that submit to the authority of your word. Lord, I recognize that I'm weak and feeble and you are holy. And who am I to stand here and speak for you? I pray that you would please fill me with your spirit. I pray that you would please speak through me. Uh, I pray that I would speak with humility, but with courage and strength. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us all ears to hear, that you would still our hearts for this short time, still our minds Help us to focus, help us to lay aside worldly endeavors, the, the, the busyness of life, the things that we know we need to do today or tomorrow. But for this time, help us just to be present with you and sit under your word, I pray in Jesus' name. <laughs> Amen. 
All right. Well, Paul writes this, this letter to young Timothy, who was, of course, a pastor. He was the pastor at the church of Ephesus. And I, I, many, many people believe that Paul used this language because this idea of a pillar would have been at the forefront of Timothy's mind. He would have, he would have seen large pillars every day because the city of Ephesus is known for the temple of the goddess Diana. Now, that, of course, is not a, not a place that, that Timothy would have frequented, but it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a temple that was very well known, and it had 127 pillars that went around the temple. Each one of them was, was, was made out of marble. Some of them were inlaid with gold and rubies and jewels, and all of them were gifts of various kings to this goddess, Diana. Uh, maybe, as, maybe similarly, if you would have asked a person who lives in San Francisco who commutes over the Golden Gate Bridge every day and give them a metaphor using a bridge over a body of water, Paul uses this imagery of pillars or columns to speak of the church as we are then the pillar, as he said, and buttress of the truth. So firstly, what is a pillar? A pillar is something that is there to support something else. It supports a structure. A pillar is not there to support itself, but it holds up something else. It is there to bear the weight of a heavy load. And a buttress, a buttress is that which provides a foundation for something else. Or a buttress is the basis where something else is able to exist. So then the church is to bear the weight of the truth. It is the job of the church to hold up that heavy load and to prop it up against the attacks and deceit of this world. And then secondly, if the church is the buttress of the truth, the church is also the basis of said faith. The church is the ground where the faith resides, and it is the ground then where the faith is to be preserved and propagated. So why this sermon series? Why now? What is the occasion? Well, I think there's many reasons why I, I, I sought to preach this. I actually was going to preach this message um, in early September, but some stuff happened here in Phoenix and Talent. It kind of changed the direction there. Um, but I sent out a, a questionnaire to many of you. I don't know if everyone got it, but I sent out a questionnaire um, from, a, from a website that is called The State of Theology. And what this is, is a questionnaire put together by Ligonier and Lifeway. You're probably familiar with Lifeway. They're the, the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. And they have a research arm, Lifeway Research, really good at what they do. So Ligonier is another ministry that is formed by uh, the late Dr. R.C. Sproul, I think in the 70s. And they contracted with Lifeway Research to get a gauge of the state of the theological acumen of Americans. And they've done this study four times. They do it every two years. This was the fourth one. The data was released on uh, September 8th, just a few weeks back. And I sent out that survey to many of you in the church, if you are able to text. Um, if I'm not going to talk about our data today. I want to look at the national data. And this study was given to Americans, but you can, you can kind of narrow down the results to just believing evangelicals. So I want to today see some of the answers from believing evangelicals. Now, what is a believing evangelical? 
I think personally that the word evangelical is almost lost its usefulness because it's been hijacked by politics and it's just but but for this study there were four questions that you had to answer yes to to be considered a believing evangelical not that you just checked a box but that you actually are a believing evangelical you had to say yes that the bible is the highest authority for christian belief you had to say that you agree that personal evangelism is very important You had to agree that Jesus' death on the cross is the only way to cancel the penalty of sin. And you had to agree that trusting in Christ is the only way to eternal salvation. So great questions, right? And I think if you answer yes to all those with conviction and true faith, you're probably a believer. So those people that answered yes to all of those, I want to give you some of the results from this study. So these are statements, and you had to say yes or no. You had to agree or disagree. Uh, The first one is God accepts the worship of all religions, and they gave some examples, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 42% of believers said, yes, God accepts the worship of all religions. Now, does God accept the worship of all religions? God is very clear in the Bible that to worship anything but Him in the way that He has prescribed is idolatry. It's one of the worst sins. It's one of the sins that Israel committed time and time again in the Old Testament. 40% 40% of people said yes. Now, I want to I leave some room for a misunderstanding of the question. Sometimes questions can be tricky. Um, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. I want to read just one, just real quick if I can. Jeremiah 17 Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? No, actually, none of us are good. We actually need to be made good by God. We need to be redeemed from our sin, our wickedness. All people are actually bad by nature, and everyone sins a lot. Um, here's, I think this one it probably tricks some people up. Jesus is the first and greatest being, sounds good, created by God. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Jesus is great, amen? Amen. But he is not created. 65% of evangelicals said that Jesus was created by God. So if you you believe that, then congrats, you're a Jehovah's Witness. Um, But that is not what we believe as Christians. Jesus was never created. He had a beginning when he took on flesh in the Incarnation, And I think people probably read the beginning of that, hopefully some, and missed that created part. The next one is pretty cut and dry. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 32% of evangelicals said yes, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. I hope that through this exposition of John, we have seen Jesus is definitely God in the flesh. He has always been God. And he always will be God. And he is also a man. The Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. 46% said yes to that. Holy Spirit is a person. He is a he. We can grieve him, lie to him. He's a third person of the Trinity. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. So let me ask you. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. So when I'm downstairs and Erica just made this amazing batch of cookies, and I say, Charlotte, do not touch one of those cookies. You are not allowed to have one. They're for whatever else. They're for something else. 
And we go upstairs, and she sneaks in there, and she steals a cookie. Beloved, is that deserving of hell? Yes, it's a sin against a holy God. 50% of Christians said that even the smallest sin does not deserve eternal damnation. And if we think like that, then we do not understand God's holiness and the rank cosmic treason that sin is against a holy God. There is no little small sin in that sense when we're talking about a perfectly pure and holy God. And James 2 says that if you've broken one law, you're guilty of the whole thing. Right? We've all lied. We've all stolen something at some point. We've all done a host of sins. Uh, does modern science disprove the Bible? 23% of Christians either don't know or they said yes. Modern science disproves the Bible. Um, this is a very American one. God will always reward true faith with material blessings in this life. God will always reward true faith, if you're sincere, with material blessings in this life. 40% of believers said yes. That's a prosperity gospel. Consider our brothers and sisters in Kenya, in Peru, in Nigeria, where just for gathering like we are, men often come in, take their women away, rape them, kill the pastor, shoot half the people. Right now in 2020, that happens almost every week in other countries. Do you think that they have sincere faith? And do you think that they're calling on God for material blessings? It is not our big house that we are trusting in, but it is Christ. Amen. That is the blessing that God gives us. 20% of Christians believe that gender is a matter of choice. I decide if I'm a boy or a girl. And a quarter of Christians agree that religious belief is just a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. Jesus is true for me, but whatever might be true for you, that works for you. Houston, we have a problem. Uh, as the church does not know what it believes. As someone who has been called by the Lord to teach, uh, this grieves me deeply, um, but I'm not here to point fingers and say, look at all these knuckleheads that don't understand. I want to look at myself and ask the question, how can I better teach the whole counsel of God that we might know what it is that we believe? So that is part of the occasion for why I wanted to get into this small series. My outline today is, is pretty straightforward. We need to know the faith, we need to believe the faith, and we need to defend the faith. Maybe you're sitting there still and you're saying, why is this important? Though? You know, I love Jesus. That's what matters. Why is all this truth stuff, doctrine stuff, Bible stuff, is, is this really important that I know all this stuff? Well, a man named Dr. Paul Hybert has some insight to share. He was a Mennonite. He has went home to be with the Lord. But he was a Mennonite, and he, and he said this about his own denomination. He said there was one generation, not the first generation, but there was one generation that believed the gospel. It was central to them. It was primary. They were about Christ and him crucified. But they also saw that there were certain political and social attachments to the gospel. And I think that that's right, that if we truly believe the gospel, it's going to influence how we understand politics, how we understand social issues. So this generation believed the gospel. It was precious. It was central. The next generation they assumed the gospel, and they identified with the political and social entailments. The gospel was still there. It was in the periphery. It wasn't primary. It wasn't the solution for what ails man, but it was still there. But they began to identify more with the social stuff, feeding the sick, helping the poor, those things. The next generation 
deny the gospel, abandon the gospel, and the social entailments, those attachments, became everything. And what did they learn? They saw from their parents that the gospel was not that big of a deal. It wasn't really relevant to what we do. It wasn't denied by their parents, but it was just kind of assumed so that the next generation says, we apparently don't need this whole cross thing. It's just all about social issues. It's kind of a classic slide into liberalism. Social justice and these things become primary. So certainly we need to know what it is that we believe. And I think the reality is a lot of churches or a lot of Christians are kind of in that second phase, assuming the gospel, but more worried about other things. I know a lot of faithful Christians with great theology, but sometimes I wonder if abortion is a bigger issue to them than the gospel. They're so about ending abortion, which I believe is a great worthy cause, Sometimes they preach that message over the cross of Christ. Another, on the other side, today we see a lot about racism. But it seems for many, in many churches, this thing has trumped preaching Christ and Him crucified. We want to have the cross as central always. So number one, firstly, know the faith. Please turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm going to read from verse 1. This is one of Paul's longer letters, and he spent about 14 chapters really correcting a bunch of errors in the church at Corinth. There was sexual immorality in the church, and he instructed them, you need to do some church discipline. You need to deal with this situation. There were factions in the church. You know, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Their worship was kind of out of control, and he was trying to bring some order to their worship. And then here in chapter 15, he kind of centers them back onto what matters, onto not that those things didn't matter, but onto what is primary, onto what truly and certainly always matters. And he says in 15.1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Now, to stand in this gospel, or like we said earlier, to be a pillar of the truth, to uphold the truth, it goes without saying, I guess, that we must first and foremost know the truth. If we do not know the truth, how can we stand in the truth? If we do not know the truth, how can we be a pillar that is upholding the truth? And here Paul speaks specifically about the gospel. The gospel that he preached is the gospel that they believed. The gospel that he preached is the gospel that they are standing on. He goes on to say, this is of first importance this gospel message they've received it they're standing on it they are being saved by it as we consider the truth i think we would all probably agree that at the heart of the truth is the message of christ at the heart of the faith at the heart at the heart of the biblical story is christ and him crucified so i ask you then church what is the gospel it is good news, amen? We might say it's the story about Jesus. Jesus died for you. But what really is the gospel? And if someone were to come to you and say, hey, I heard you're a Christian, and I've heard about this Jesus, and I've heard about this gospel thing, explain the gospel to me. Would you be able to explain it? 
But you'll be able to, 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 to get all the different facets of the gospel. I want to I read to you a quote that I love from uh, J.I. Packer, who just recently went home. He received this reward. He is beholding the face of Christ. I'm a little jealous. But he, 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 he has this quote, and he speaks of the gospel, and he brings it down to three words. God saves sinners. God saves sinners. But then he breaks down each of these words. I want to read this to you. God saves sinners. God, the triune Jehovah, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons working together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve the salvation of a chosen people. The Father electing, the Son fulfilling the Father's will by redeeming, the Spirit executing the purpose of the Father and Son by renewing. God saves. He does everything first to last that is involved in bringing man from death and sin to life and glory. He plans, he achieves, he communicates redemption. He calls, he keeps, he justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. God saves sinners, men as God finds them, guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, blind, unable to lift a finger to do God's will or to better their spiritual lot. God saves sinners. Beloved, this is the heart of the Christian message. This is the truth that there is a God. There is a God that created all things. And because he is our creator, we then rightly are under this God's authority. And this God, this good and loving God has given us, he has revealed to us his will for us. Praise God, he is a God that speaks. He is a God that gives us revelation. And he has told us how we can live and flourish in his world. He's given us his good law. The law is not a hardship for us, but it shows us how we might live in obedience and faithfulness before this God. The reality is that we've all shaken our fist at times against this God. We've all, what the Bible calls, sinned against this God. We've broken His holy law. And if He were just to leave us as we are, we would all stand rightly condemned before His holy and righteous throne. But in His grace, in His steadfast love, in His long-suffering, He sent His Son. His Son, who is God, who has always been God, but also became a man. He took on a human nature so that He is fully God and fully man. He's not a superman. He's not a, he's not a half and half, but he is the God man, fully God and fully man. And he came to this earth, born of a virgin, lived this perfect, sinless life. Now, if any of you, I know most of you in here have raised kids. So let me just, let me just say that again. A sinless toddler. I mean, come on, a sinless toddler, a sinless teenager, a sinless human. He never sinned. 33 or what odd years on this earth, he never sinned in thought, action, mind, deed, any of it. But as an innocent man, he went to the cross. He went to one of the most grueling tools of execution the human mind has ever thought up, has ever concocted. And he went to that cross and he hung there and he was mocked and ridiculed and reviled. And it was there that he bore the righteous condemnation of his own father. It was there that he took the penalty of sin. But again, it was not his sin. It was our sin. It was your sin. And he was in your place, in my place on that cross. But he went there as a substitute 
took the penalty for sin, took the wrath of his father, and it was there that he died. They laid him in a tomb. Three days later, he rose victoriously. He was seen by his people and over 500 men. And as we saw last week, in glory, he ascended back to the right hand of the throne. Beloved, he is coming back. He will return to judge the righteous and the wicked. This is the gospel message that we hold dear. And let me just say, if you've yet to believe in this truth, if this truth has not yet been dear to you in your heart, I'm not talking about some sort of head knowledge that you just you know about Christianity because you've been in the church. I'm talking about trusting in Christ and Christ alone to save. And today, friend, can be the day of salvation for you. Today you can experience and know the grace of God in Christ by repenting and believing in the name above all names, the only name that saves, the name of Jesus. We have to know this gospel. You know, there's many, there's many uh, things in life where we can just kind of wing it, right? You ever, you ever do that? You know, I'm just going to wing it. I'm just going to go for it. When I... When I first got my driver's license, I got it kind of late. I think I was like 20. And, you know, I went in there. I just kind of winged it. I had, I had, don't tell anybody, I had been driving without a license a little bit. Um, but I bought a car and had to drive it to the DMV. And I went in there and I just kind of winged it. I never read the book. I didn't really know the, the real rules. But, you know, you get behind a car. And I drove a golf cart for a long time at my grandpa's house, you know, and just kind of winged it. And, hey, I got my license. And there I'm going down the street, 3,500-pound hunk of steel, kid doesn't know much, and off I go. There's a lot of things in life where we just kind of wing it and we just get by. But when it comes to the faith, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to this body of divinity that the Lord has given us, we can't simply be those that just want to wing it, just want to kind of get by in our laurels. Listen to these words from, from Paul in his second letter to Timothy. He says here in 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, Do your best. To present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This exhortation is that he would be able to handle the word. Now, you might push back and say, yeah, but that's to a pastor. He's writing that to a pastor. And I would say, yes, that is, that is true and that is fair. But I think that when we look at a pastor, what ultimately, what is a pastor? Someone who is to exemplify, Lord help me, godly character. Someone is, who is to, is to lead and to be an example to the flock. But I think if anything, we would probably all agree that Christians ought to be people of the book. Any and all of us ought to be able to open up the word, to read the word, and give the sense of what it says, to explain, thus saith the Lord. Listen to this text from Deuteronomy. I'm just going to read this today. This is going to be a foundation for one of the other sermons. But Deuteronomy chapter 6 begins with, what is known as the Shema, which is a prayer that, that a faithful Jew would recite morning and evening every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And listen to this. These words that I commanded you today, Moses had just given the, the Ten Commandments to God's people. These words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall... Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. 
you see that God's people are to be inundated with the word of God, with the truth, that whether we lie down or we rise, when we walk along the way, when we train up our children, we ought to train them up in the faith. We need to know the faith. Secondly, we need to believe the faith. Believe the faith. So back in 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, it may seem odd to tell a group of Christians that, that we need to believe the faith. But listen to his words here, Paul's words. He says that the gospel that I preach, that you received, in which you stand, and by which you are now being saved. And, and Paul uses that language both ways. He says that you are saved, have been saved, but he also says that you are being saved. And I believe that when he says that you are saved, he speaks of justification, the fact that we have been declared righteous, that we have been blood-washed and righteousness robed by Christ. But when he speaks of us being saved, he speaks of this process of sanctification, where we are daily, not sinless, but hopefully, God willing, we are sinning less. Right? We are being conformed into the image of Jesus. And when I say that we need to believe the faith, what I mean is that the word of God is at work in our lives. So that it is transforming, changing, and renewing our minds. As Paul says when he writes to the Roman church in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. To believe the faith is to be shaped by the faith, is to be informed and led by this body of truth. Another way that I might say it is to believe the faith is to have a Christian worldview. What the heck is a world view? A worldview is simply the lens by which we see all things. So I uh, have to wear these dumb things all the time to see. Um, but we all, right now, even though you don't know it, have a pair of glasses on. And there are a pair of glasses that you don't even realize that are there, but they are the presuppositions that you see everything through. That we have just certain things in our mind that we understand of the world, the truth that we hold to, the experiences that we've been through, and those things shape how we see everything. So a Christian worldview, partly at least, means that I look at everything with an understanding that there is an all-wise God who made all things. And that is in His wisdom, He has revealed to us His will. It is this God that tells us what good is and what evil is. And because He is the Creator, what He says goes. He has absolute authority. So to have a Christian worldview means that I see everything through that lens. If I believe the faith, then the word of God, the faith is found in the word, is going to have a profound impact on every aspect of my life. So what does that mean? Well, to have a Christian worldview, to believe the faith, means that the word of God is going gonna, is gonna to impact how I, how I vote or don't vote. It's going to impact who I marry. It's going to impact how I raise a family, how I choose to educate my children, the career choices that I make or don't make, how I order my finances, where I spend my time, 
the things that I do for recreation, the media that I choose to read, watch, and listen to. If I am truly believing the faith that I find in the Scriptures, then the Word of God is going to be the authority that speaks to every area of my life. Not just the Christian stuff, not just the Sunday stuff, not just what I believe about Jesus, but my ethics. And when the world comes and says, this is good, if it doesn't stand the test of the Word of God, then it needs to be denied and thrown away and done away with. To believe the faith is to allow the Word to permeate all of who I am so that I can no longer view social and political issues apart from my allegiance to Christ and His authority. Amen? So, and if this is true, if I'm, if I'm believing the faith, that maybe this is just a little, an aside, a little pet peeve of mine, I probably won't say things like this. And I've heard professing Christians, maybe they were well-meaning, but I've heard professing Christians say to me, you know, I'm just going to let my children figure out faith and religion for themselves. I'm not going to push mine on them. Now, I'm, I'm hoping that comes from a place of ignorance. But if we truly believe the faith, there's only one choice, right? There's only one choice. There's only one God. And to, to not try to push that truth on our children to me, it would seem like a, a, an evil thing to do. I want to, no, I want to do it winsomely. Haley can be the judge if I do that or not. But, but I want my kids to know Christ. I want them to worship the God that I worship. I want them to love that I, the God that I love. And I believe that God is, is due worship from all creatures, especially the ones in my family. I want to see them worship Him. And not only that, but the Bible instructs parents to train their children in the faith. To believe the faith is to have it impact every aspect of our lives. And notice real quick that Paul said that there is also a quote-unquote belief that is vain. There is a belief that is vanity. He said to them uh, in 1 Corinthians there again in 15, This gospel I preached, you received it, you're standing in it, by it you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So there is a belief, there is a recognition of Christianity. There are even people certainly that are part of the visible church that are experiencing the benefits of being in a household of faith. But if they do not hold fast to the word that was preached, it will prove that their belief was in vain. It was vanity. It was not true saving faith. But again, to believe the faith is to allow the word of God to impact every area of our lives and then lastly we need to defend this faith and if you would please turn to the book of jude it is the second to last book of the bible just before revelation a single chapter so jude 3 is where we're at and that's actually verse 3 we need to defend this faith know it believe it and defend it jude 3 Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that
that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now consider this book for a moment when it was written. Uh, Scholars believe in the 60s A.D., we can be conservative, and, and we might push that date to like 80, 80 A.D. And if that is the case, then this book was written 50 years after the cross, 50 years after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back to the right hand of his Father. And it is only 50 short years that Jude here sees fit to write this church and to warn them to contend for the faith. Did you hear what he said? He said, I, I really wanted, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. Man, I wanted to write about the gospel. I wanted to write about Christ and the salvation that we have in him and the joy that it is to know this Christ. But he said, I found it necessary to write to you, to appeal to you, to contend for the faith. If this contending for the faith was necessary 50 years after the cross, how about 2,000 years after Christ, how much more necessary is it for us today to fight for this faith, to contend for the faith? The word contend here, it means to exert intense effort on behalf of something else. He calls the church, the church to exert intense effort on behalf of upholding and preserving this faith. And what did he call it? He said the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What in the world is that? What is the body of Christian truth? It is a summation of what it is that the Bible teaches. And one of the things I think he shows us there is that revelation is not continuing. This faith was once for all delivered to the saints. We don't need to be looking for new aspects of the faith, new revelation. We have it all here in the scriptures. What is this faith? I keep, I keep saying, know the faith, believe the faith, defend the faith. What is the faith? Well, it is, again, this body of Christian truth. We would certainly there include the doctrine of God, that we believe in one God. And don't let anybody tell you any different, Christian. We are not polytheists, whatever the, the Muslims want to say. We are monotheists. We believe in one God, but that God is triune. He has eternally existed. His Father, Son, and Spirit. We ought to know his attributes, that he is eternal, sovereign, holy, powerful. He is the creator God. He is a king. We need to know what the Bible teaches about ourselves. Have a biblical anthropology that we've been created by God in his image and in his likeness. But there was a little thing called the fall, right? And we fell into sin and our first parents sinned and we sinned in them as they represented us. Because of that fall, we've been cursed. We've inherited Adam's sin. We've inherited his guilt so that we are not good by nature, but that we are actually sinful and broken by nature. Certainly we need to know about Christ, that He is fully God, eternally existed as God, but He is also a man. He was miraculously born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, substitutionary death, died on the cross for our sin, and He is one day returning in full glory to judge the righteous and the wicked. We ought to know about the gospel, as we talked about earlier, what it means to be called, justified, adopted, sanctified. What is repentance? What is faith? How can I have assurance that I'm a believer? 
We ought to know about His law. Is it relevant for Christians today? Does it have any bearing on our lives? Beloved, there is much to put our minds to. There is much to learn. There is much to know so that we are able to defend. Now, let me just say the obvious that I understand that we're not all pastors. We don't all have the same amount of time. There's only one person in this room that, praise be to God, is, is, is paid to study the Bible and to teach the Bible and to pray. Um, and I understand that. And everyone has different acumen, different amount of time. But notice that Jude writes this letter, and it's not to the elders of the church. It's not to the pastor. It's to the church. And he calls the church at large to contend for the faith. This is not just a duty of skilled theologians that are up in their ivory towers and all they ever do is, is read the Bible. But this is for the person in the pew. This is for the normal member of the church to contend earnestly for the faith, to fight, to preserve the faith. As Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, he says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Set Christ apart in your heart as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Give in apologia. That's where we get the word apologetics. To give an apologetic to anyone who asks you for the hope. And maybe that's a simple question to ask. Christian, if a person came to you and asked you, why do you have hope? Could you answer that question? With more than that one word answer. Jesus is a good answer, but they might want more. Are you able to give a defense for the hope that is in you? The Bible says that we ought to always be prepared to give that defense and to do it, I might add, and I appreciate this part, with gentleness and respect. So as I wrap up this first message, I really just wanted to lay the foundation. No nuts and bolts here, just the charge for the church, that we ought to firstly know the faith, that we ought to have a grasp and an understanding of biblical truth and biblical doctrine, that we should believe the faith, that as Christians we ought to be shaped and molded by and informed by the word, and thirdly, that we ought to defend the faith that we ought to stand for historic orthodoxy that God has given his church for the last 2,000 years. So Christian, I ask you this simple question. Will you stand for the truth? Will you stand for this truth? Are you counting the cost right now? What it may cost you to stand for the truth? I believe that the days in America where standing for Christ does not cost us anything. Those days are quickly being put behind us. And there will probably be a day in all of our lives that we need to take a stand for biblical truth. Now, it may not be with your head on a, on a, on a, on a, on a platform with a swordsman saying, renounce Christ or die, but you may very well be asked to take a stand for biblical truth. Will you stand for what the Bible says about marriage? Will you stand for what the Bible says about sexuality, about gender, about the true solution for racism and injustice? Will you stand for what the Bible says about abortion? Will you be swept away by a culture that wants to get rid of God out of every aspect of our life? The church is, as Paul said, the pillar and buttress of the truth. And may we at First Baptist Church here be a, by God's grace, a city on a hill, a body of Christians that are willing to stand against any and all attacks that this world might throw at us. May we contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Amen.
I'm going to pray, and then we're going to receive uh, the Lord's Supper this morning. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you're patient with us, Lord, that we still have many issues in our life, all of us as individuals. We still sin and need your help, but you still use us, Lord. And you've called us to stand up for you, for your great name. You've called us to stand up for this truth. Lord, as we live in a world that is largely hostile to this truth, we ask and pray that you would help us to stand with confidence, that you would help us to stand upright as those that have confidence in your word, confidence in you and your abilities and your power, and confidence in your call, that you've called us to be those defenders of the truth. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.